This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to talk about Dana White announcing that Peter Yan was going to fight Jose Aldo for the vacant bantamweight title. We'll talk to the director of the 30 for 30 documentary about Lance Armstrong. Marina Zenovich will be here. And then last but not least, Anderson Silva wants to fight Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor wants to fight Anderson Silva. Yeah, no thanks. We'll talk about that as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. And don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Let's kick the show off here. So we all know at UFC 250, there's going to be a ban- there's several bantamweight clashes, but one of the bantamweight clashes is going to be uh, Corey Sandhagen taking on Peter, uh, excuse me, Corey Sandhagen taking on Aljamain Sterling. All right. So that's one half of the bracket, right? That's one half of the ostensible four-man tournament, you would think. doesn't really work out that way. They're not going to do a four-man tournament. You thought that the four top guys at Bantamweight, Marlon Marais, Peter Yan, Aljamain Sterling, Corey Sandhagen, the four of them would have a mini tournament, fight it out, winner becomes champ. Turns out that that's not what they're looking to do. That's not the direction that they are headed in. And if you've not heard this, this may come as a bit of a surprise. Certainly it shocked me for just a moment. It looks like what they're trying to do instead They're going to keep Corey Sandhagen versus Aljamain Sterling at UFC 250. Great. They're also going to do Peter Yan versus dot, 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 Jose Aldo. (laughs) And they're going to do it for the vacant bantamweight title. Like, it's not even that's, you know, dueling number one contender fights or something. Like, you know, Aldo versus Yan, winner of that, fights the winner of Sandhagen versus Sterling, and the winner of that becomes the, the champion. No, no, no. They're just going to put it on the other one. Now, uh, some of that makes a little bit of sense, right? In the sense that I think Jan was considered by some, whether you agree or not. We had Corey Sandhagen on the show. He does not agree that Jan's resume is better. But Jan, I think, is ranked a little bit higher. I can verify that. Jan has sort of been seen as like, uh, you know, he's got certainly he's done the, the most chirping out there, but actually, no, Sterling is ranked two, Jan is ranked three, Marais is ranked one. Now, Marais already lost to Cejudo, so even though he rebounded against Aldo, he's still kind of in this no man's land. But I, the, I, you sort of get where uh, Jan is coming from in this equation in that the UFC, I think, likes his fight style. He's aggressive, he's young, and he's a you know, he's striker friendly, and he's really active on social media. He talks a lot of smack. He's something that a promoter would favor. You can kind of you can kind of understand that it's the it's the Aldo part that is just really hard to square. Now, someone brought up to me that like they had promised him a title shot before the pandemic hit and then they subbed in Cruz. I guess they feel like they still had to see that through. Probably that is the reason that is what's happening here. But honestly, I I hate every part of it. Like, look, man, let's just be real about this. There's no consequence really to the UFC doing this, at least not in the short term. A lot of times when the UFC makes these like crazy calls where somebody gets slotted in for a fight and it makes no sense that they're there, people overreact and say the sky is falling. The sky is not falling. Okay, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, Certainly not in the short term. There's always the long term consequence that 
the way it works in fight promotion is certainly with the UFC is that they generally want to make sure that the best fight the best. They want to make sure that the fights get put on that people want to pay money to see, right? So all of that kind of stays where it's supposed to stay. And then occasionally you just veer off the reservation and you go and try things, right? And sometimes they work out really great, like a Brock Lesnar. Sometimes they don't, like a CM Punk um, or a James Tony, which I guess worked for the purposes that they had it work for. But in general, you, you know, you go in that direction and you sort of come back to the norm or something much more approximating the norm. And that might not even be like a real paradigm anymore, but that's typically the way it's been thought of. You stick to what is the straight and narrow, which will more often than not get you what you need. And then when you need to go in different directions, you can, right? You, it makes sense to take a risk on Brock Lesnar for all the reasons that we, you know, you could state, right? I mean, he might be really good and uh, hello, people pay money on pay-per-view to see him. Heavyweight is weak, you know, blah, blah, blah. CM Punk came around at a time when the UFC had a bit of a down 2014. So he, he didn't find 2014, but that was the genesis of his introduction. It didn't work. So whatever. Um, and you could do this. You could run through that particular consideration for every time they veered off this thing. And we even said it for when, for example, Romero got the shot against Adesanya at the way the division was set up in terms of who was available. It just made the most sense at the time. Not that Romero had done anything from a winning perspective to get there, but you sort of understood it. The fight ended up sucking, but you know, again, different story. We said at the time that Aldo versus Cejudo was not that way, that there were other ready contenders who were more deserving. Number one, people always make this argument like, well, you could make the case that Aldo won against Morales. I can make the case for a million things. I can make the case for a lot of things that didn't actually happen. He did not actually win. You can be upset at that fact, but it's a fact. Morales won that fight. Two rounds to one. That, that's just the way that it goes. If they wanted to run it back to, 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 to do it over again, fine, but they didn't. And we are where we are on this one. And so you had this moment where it was like the guys who were available who would have been really interesting just weren't getting the call. And they were going to a guy who had one bantamweight fight that he had lost. Granted, he was very competitive in it, but he had lost. And now they're kind of doing the same thing. And the reason why they're doing it again, if they're just doing it because they said they would do it for him and they just want to see it through, you know, again, the sky's not falling. I get it. I sort of understand it. But to me, it's like this is really a lost opportunity and it just gives license to do kinds of crazy things in the future, none of which I particularly appreciate. Right now, what's happening at Bantamweight is they're having this surge of youth moving through the division of younger guys pushing out the older guard and it's uh, it is marvelous to watch dude everyone is super pumped everyone who knows anything about fighting is super pumped about Sandhagen versus Sterling and you'd feel the exact same way about Marlon versus Jan which by the way was booked prior to the pandemic and now I guess all of that is up in smoke okay that to me is what you want to embrace this new this new talent you can leverage because people keep saying, Oh, it's a name fighter in Aldo. And yes, Peter Jan beating Aldo is certainly going to do more for his visibility than beating Marice probably would. But if Aldo was criticized for anything during the course of his career, it was not learning English to be a star. It was not being a star. It was being super well-respected for what he was as a featherweight champion and competitor, but not for the celebrity that he brought to the, brought to the game. Certainly not in the pay-per-view buying North American audience. Brazil might be a bit of a different situation. I think probably it is. But where pay-per-views are bought and sold, no, it was never that way. And like, do we suspect now that he's lost all this time to Marais at 
135 and he's lost twice by stoppage to Max that he's at the peak of his visibility powers. Like whatever gain that Peter gets ostensibly from beating him. And by the way, that's no guarantee. Aldo is still very good, it seems like. But let's assume that he gets past him. He probably should. Does he get that much of a bump that it meant giving Marais the axe? No, I don't I don't think that it does. Not 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 to me. Putting him in there, again, are fighters going to revolt as a consequence? No. Are fans going to stop watching new at UFC? No. It doesn't work that way. The sky is not falling. This is not the end of the world. It's not something you need to go and boycott about. It's just not worth it. And again, could end up being a pretty good fight. But rather, you just want to make sure that when you have an opportunity at a weight class where now Henry Cejudo has dropped not one but two different titles. They had an issue the first time at flyweight. They're going to run it back. They're still having problems. It made all the sense in the world to feature your new talent. And Marais isn't as new as the other ones like Sterling Young and Sanhagen who have not had title shots. I grant, but he is still a force to be reckoned with in that division. He is, I think, significantly more exciting in general at this stage at bantamweight than Jose Aldo. Uh, his resume certainly demands that he be there. And every time you go off the reservation like this, you might come back more off. Every time they come back, every time they come back. But it just, you, I, I feel like you only want to play that card when you need to. To me, you don't need to do it. You wanted to make the dominant Cruz fight because, you know, you didn't know what was going to happen with Cejudo and... You were saving Sanhagen versus Sterling to really see who was the better of the two, to really see who's going to you know, move through the division in that kind of a way, and you wanted a boost of star power when you couldn't get a gate. Okay, I can swallow it once. We made the, we made the argument about Yoel Romero fighting Israel Adesanya. It's not that you can never make unusual fights. I don't think you need to here. I don't think it's the end of the world that you did. But you definitely didn't need to. You didn't need to. And to me, Marlon Marais, what the hell is he supposed to do now? I guess maybe he'll fight the winner of a Sun Sal Garbrandt, I guess, or something. Or maybe he could do a rematch with Aldo if Aldo loses uh, or something. I don't even know where this would put him, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, it's crazy. It's completely crazy. So I hate it. Um, I don't think it's the end of the world, but I hate it. And this is, to me, not the way you feature up-and-coming talent at, at a surging, rising, interesting division. You lean into the talent that you have, and you already don't get whatever star power transfer there was from Henry Cejudo, which, by the way, itself would be pretty modest at this point. You don't get any of that. Aldo provides even less. Uh, it, it, it just You want to jump the queue. You want to go unusual. Give me a compelling reason to do that. The visibility boost from beating Aldo at this point, it ain't enough. It ain't enough. How, it's just like, how is the number one contender who's coming off of a win who I'm guessing is ready? I mean, maybe he's injured. We don't know. I mean, maybe that's a thing. I, I don't exactly know what the truth is there, but I just find it a little bit crazy. Find it a little bit odd. We have a number one contender and he can't get a fight in one of the most exciting and youth-filled divisions in the sport? Like, and this is not number one contender like, like Tyron Woodley in the sense where Tyron's a former champion, but he hasn't fought in 15 months. How, how is it possible that that is your most deserving contender when all the other contenders around him have competed and won or lost? Right? I just don't understand that. I mean, yes, Sterling has been on a great win streak. So has Peter. So has Corey. Okay, but they've all got booked. So one way or the other problem solved what is marlin's issue 
And so this is what I mean. It's like, who does Marlon fight after this? I guess Marlon could fight Pedro Munoz if he wins. Because Munoz sitting at seven jumps up. Or maybe Garbrandt will rock it to the top. Or maybe Marais takes on the loser of Sterling and Sandhagen. Especially if it's Sterling, they could do a rematch. I mean, I'm not saying he has no options. But it, 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 like, what is? how can you be at number one? And I cannot clearly articulate for you what their path back to the title is. That's yeah, that's a little odd, right? That's a little weird, huh? This is what I mean. Like, is the sky falling? No. Like Aldo. Versus, by the way, Aldo and Jan train together. They. Uh, I think Jan yesterday was posing pictures of the whole thing, the old training sessions. I mean. You know, I just, I've never seen a situation, and you might be saying, well, look, what about what's Tyron's path back to the title? I, I could actually make that one a little bit easier. If he beats Burns, I don't know that it gets him a title shot, right? Okay, fair. But at welterweight, what if they can't make this fight between Jorge and Kamaru, and Tyron looks amazing against Gilbert? And then gets a fight against Colby and looks good there. I would say after that, there's no doubt in my mind he gets one. Especially if everyone else in the game doesn't want to play ball. And he's ready and willing. Like if Tyron Woodley comes out and he's Mr. Congeniality. And he's Mr. I'll do what the promotion needs to you know, get the best out of me. And make this all work. And blah, 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 blah. Yeah, sure. I, I can absolutely see that. I don't know what Marlon has to do. I'm not saying it's like it'll never happen. But... It's just not especially clear, and he's sitting in a winning position in the top spot. How are you not included in any title discussion? I hate it. I hate. I just can't stand it. You know. And here's the other part: if Aldo goes in there, and everyone, everyone who would ostensibly defend it, not the callers who apparently hate this topic, but everyone else who would defend it would say something like, you know, oh, it, you know, the fight could be good and blah, blah, blah. Yes, I don't deny that there's a very realistic possibility that the fight could be good. But I swear to God, if Aldo goes in there who has to kill himself to make weight, if he misses weight, I don't want to hear from any of you that that was a risk worth taking. The only way it makes sense to put Aldo in there is if he executes the job, which is he doesn't get sick, doesn't get injured, makes weight, no problem, gets there. You know, whatever. But the reality is, we're gonna we're gonna boost this guy up the rankings. I mean, put him at six for being zero and one at bantamweight. Are you shitting me? And then we're gonna put him in a title shot again. If the UFC is just saying we owed you one, so we're gonna fulfill our promise. Okay, all right. You know, I'll just grin and bear it. Like I get it in a way, but you know, I just remember year after year of fans calling into this show or writing me or tweeting me to let me know how they didn't care about Aldo, how they couldn't believe this guy was making demands on UFC, how he never learned English to be a star, how he had done all these things, and now all of a sudden he's the prized pig at the ball that everyone wants to fight because that's the way you build your name. No, you build your name by winning that four-man tournament and becoming the champion, not by per se beating Jose Aldo because, to be honest, let's say Jan wins and claims the title, right, and then moves into that position, are you really going to say that's the best guy in that division? There's no way you could possibly know that. 
He hasn't fought Marlon. He hasn't fought Corey. He hasn't fought Aljamain. He's just the champion because, and this is not Peter's fault. I understand him taking the fight. He took the easiest route to get there. That's just a fact. You have no idea if that's actually the best guy. Like when Kamaru beat Tyron, you had a pretty good sense. That's probably the best guy. Then he beat Colby. Yeah, you definitely knew he was the best guy. You don't have no idea if Peter's the best guy if he wins this fight. No clue. Zero. None. He'd have beaten an 0-2 bantamweight fighter who's in his mid-30s. Early to mid-30s. Great. It's just, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me. This week on World of Basketball, director of USA Basketball, Jerry Colangelo, joined the show and spoke about the surprising role he asked Kobe Bryant to take on ahead of the 2008 Olympics. I said, Kobe, I said, I may have a different role for you if you play for us. He said, what do you mean? I said, I may want you to be a distributor rather than a scorer. And he kind of looked at me funny, funnily and he says, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I just want to be part of it. And of course, I was pulling this chain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. all. <laughs> New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. So I've been watching this uh, documentary, two-parter, that's on uh, ESPN. And uh, it was ESPN2, I suppose you can get both. I, I watched an early version, so I've seen part one and part two. Part one already aired, and um, it, I found it fascinating. I finished part two already, and I really, really enjoyed it. Part two, I, actually, I got to say, for me, was part, part one was interesting. Part two is even way better than that. Part two is is just crazy good. Um, so I want to give you some. We're gonna we're gonna have the director. I think where she's calling in now. We're trying to get her, Marina uh, Zelenovich. Uh, Zelenovich, excuse me. I'm getting the name wrong here. I apologize. Uh, Marina Zelenovich. She is calling in now. So we're trying to get her all set up. Um, but if you haven't seen it, it's part of the Thirty for Thirty collection. It debuted on May twenty fourth, part one. It's at 8 p.m., uh, excuse me, 9 p.m. in the East. And again, broadcast on ESPN, ESPN2. All right, let us go to her now. She is the director of this uh, said documentary, which I've been really enjoying. It's Marina Zenovich. Hi, Marina. How are you? Hi, great. How are you? Doing quite well. All right, Marina, let's get to it. Um, people ask me this question all the time, which is, isn't there just so much information and stories told about Lance? Why does there need to be another one? I finished part two. I loved it. But how would you answer that question? Well, I think uh, there were a couple of films, well, there were nonfiction and fiction films uh, made, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. I think this is different in that it's the first time that he's really sat for an extended period and kind of addressed what happened back then. Um so to me, I mean, when ESPN called me and wanted me to do this, my first question was why. And it turned out that he was kind of starting to dip his toe into podcasts and what have you. You know, after his downfall, I mean, wow, God, the guy was like, he's 48 now. So he was like roughly 40. I mean, what is he going to do? Like hide under a rock? I think he was kind of little by little, um, coming out of that period and, and, you know, 
started his podcast and started making appearances and found that some people wanted to hear from him. So um, I feel fortunate that I was um, lucky enough to be considered to kind of sit down with him and grill him as much as I did. You know, it's interesting. I see people, I don't know if they've watched it or not, and there's probably been this pervasive criticism, which you've seen, maybe pervasive is a strong word, but I've seen it in places where they're like, oh, I don't want to see anything where Lance is talking because whatever he gets his hands in, he's just trying to make himself look good. And to be clear, there is a larger picture that is told here, particularly about his efforts with cancer research and the, the Livestrong Foundation. But I did not walk away from this thinking like, oh, they just did a great job making him look good. I wonder what you make of some of the, I mean, people can't even imagine him, um, right? Like, what do you make of this criticism where they can't even imagine he has anything to say? Well, everyone's a critic, right? right. Um, I, I feel fortunate for the people who uh, understand what we were trying to do. And, um, you know, those voices are the ones I want to listen to. Um, you know, Twitter wasn't always around. So if it wasn't, you know, I'd just be getting emails. I don't know if people who who hate the film and hate him would, you know, God knows I've gotten a couple through my website. People really feel the need to connect and tell you what they think. So it all is part of the part of the job. But I'm thrilled for the people that are able to see kind of the the nuance of what we were trying to do. Look, this story isn't black and white. It is goddamn gray. I'm sure I'll mm. get a email about cussing because I've already gotten those. Um, it is gray though, and he's a he's a human being who's trying to process what he went through, and it was ugly. And he was at rock bottom, and he picked himself up and is trying to live his life. And it's, it's, it's not pretty, but I, I give credit to someone who's willing to kind of explore why they did what they did and try to come to terms with it. And that's something I think he's tried to do in therapy. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And I think, you know, maybe on some level, I, I didn't ask him, but maybe on some level, this film was part of that uh, exploration, you know, Fair enough. Yeah. the guy who's kind of lived his life in front of a camera. Um, so it's normal to him. So, so, so let me ask you this, which, which I found, I, I asked myself this, what did I think about Lance Armstrong that I thought I was sure about that I wasn't sure about when it was over? So let me ask you this. Yes. The person who made it same question. What did you think you knew about Lance Armstrong that you weren't really sure of when it was all over the whole process of making the movie? Um, you know, Lance is such a complicated figure, but when he was in front of me, a kind of a living, breathing, energetic, intelligent, funny person who, yes, is trying to control his narrative, but I'm trying to impose mine as well. So it was a real kind of battle of the wills. Um, what did I learn about him? That he's a complicated individual, that he's, you know, incredibly competitive, that he's an amazing athlete, that he's sorry for certain things, but not for others. That he's a human. And, um, you know, 
hopefully I'll find another character as good as this for my next film, but it, hmm. it, it doesn't happen all the time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's raw. I mean, him willing to expose himself, um, you know, even I can hear the haters going, Oh, come on. He didn't really expose himself, but he did He does more than others have. So he's trying to learn from what he did. He's trying to process what he did. And I think that's all right there in the film. And I think what a lot of people don't like, they don't like directness. Um, and I, I, I loved how direct he was. It really spoke to me and I, I, I kind of fed off that and felt I could push him further. You know, what was really interesting to me was there was a lot of uh, like the enormity of some of his errors and of some of his bad judgment began to weigh on him. And you could tell he was wrestling with that, like going after the uh, Swanier and uh, Emma O'Reilly, I think was her name. But there was yes. like w- there was one part where he was absolutely resolute. And that's about Floyd Landis. And I found that kind of surprising i thought to be honest lance would understand you know this guy they expected him to just roll over for everybody and he didn't want to do that and lance took it hard i was i guess i don't know how you felt about that but i thought that lance would be in the forgiving mood given how much wrong he had done he was but not for floyd and that one shocked me to be quite honest with you yeah, I mean, it was surprising to me, and that could have been, you know, that I caught him in a moment when he was, you know, not going to try to cover that up. Um, I I think that, I mean, it's hard to think that all these guys lived in this world where, where there was this open secret that, you know, people knew about and they thought it was just going to remain kind of hidden. I mean, it was bound to come out at some point. So I guess he kind of pins that all on Floyd. And, you know, I have to say that I don't know if I interviewed Lance today, if he would say the same thing. I mean, this, these series of interviews really took part right after the postal case settled so he was very much in that, you know, Floyd Landis um, whistleblower postal case. He had to write some big checks, um, and I, I think it, it all got to him. I mean, that's what was so great about making the movie in that particular moment was, to me, it was really a turning of the page in his life. So that was between, like, March of 2018 and August 2019, I think if I started it today, it would be a little different. So that's interesting to me. Hmm. Marina Zenovich joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. The other factor that really I just can't, this is where, I mean, you mentioned that how much gray there is. There is so much gray and you just have to reconcile with that. <laughs> so, so let me give you an yeah. example of where I, where I come down on this. He doesn't know for sure and no one can really say, but let's posit it is certainly possible, perhaps even <clears throat> probable, that his drug, uh, performance enhancing drug use led to his cancer development. But his cancer development led to his First of all, his crusade back to get healthy, obviously. And then more than that, the celebrity he got from the doping enabled him to fundraise, to establish his organization, to be a hero to many. You interview cancer uh, survivors in this who credit Lance with, I won't spoil it, but let's say very specific forms of help. And 
to me, mm-hmm. it's like the two could be inextricably linked and it's done quite good for the world. But on the other hand, of course, he broke all these rules. That to me is so bizarre and confounding, Marina. I wonder if you've gotten other people who have gone to you and said, I don't even know how to I don't even know how to make sense of this anymore. You you went out for a second, so I didn't hear part of it. Um, you know, it's all part of the story. Uh, so it was very important to me that I showed what Livestrong did, how Livestrong came from an idea of Lance and whoever else in his world at that moment that he wanted to do something and wanted to help people and wanted to educate young men so that they didn't end up in the same situation as him. I mean, how can you not include all of that because it was done for the right reasons. Um, and so, yeah, it was in the editing room is a real juggling match between kind of like the good and the bad, but you know, I think a good film is when the audience is watching and, and, and not knowing how they feel, you know, I don't want to tell you how to feel. I want you to see what he, what he did, the good, the bad and the ugly. And you, you kind of struggle with it. That's the kind of filmmaking I like, and that's what I think the film delivers on. The other part that I uh, I really appreciated, and I will candidly tell you, um, I have what can be described as probably not necessarily the most mainstream views on performance-enhancing drugs. I won't belabor the point, but suffice to say, um, I'm not necessarily or automatically horrified by their use. And what was interesting in this documentary is you certainly don't shy away from it, But what you sort of know from the other writers who you speak to, there was a point in time, at least, not forever maybe, but a certain point in time when when Lance was racing where uh, this was either you did these drugs and, and you could compete, or if you didn't, you simply had no choice. What the real mendacity was in all of this is the way in which Lance went through and sort of trying to cover it up and, and damage people who are trying to blow the whistle, right? So I wonder, like, was it a conscious choice to not overly scandalize the doping part? How did you manage about what was important there between um, the doping itself and then the cover-up of the doping as perhaps a more key consideration? Um, the Doping was something we always wanted to hit head on and, you know, show that some were doing it, some were not, that you couldn't really be expected to, you know, ride the tour and, and, and win or be up in the numbers if you weren't doping. So, you know, we tried to explain that as clearly as possible and, you know, we didn't want to go... Um, down too many rabbit holes of getting into kind of, well, it depends on, you know, doping affects everyone differently and it depends on their hemocratic level and, and Lance really benefited from doping, but others didn't. I mean, it's kind of like you could make a whole film on just that, right? Mm. And so, um, I don't know. I mean, to me, I, it's not my world. I, I was shocked to hear that, that like, you know, uh, even cyclists who aren't professional are doping, like doping, taking performance enhancing drugs for what? Like 
this need to be the best and win. It's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah, I understand. I understand. I'd love to talk to you more about it. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of work. Can't recommend it more. Lance Uh, Part 2. Yeah, Lance Part 2, 9 p.m. East Coast time on ESPN uh, this Sunday, ESPN 2 as well, plus Hulu Live and Sling. Uh, Marina, thanks for making some time for us. Great work. Thank you. Take care. Yes, ma'am. There she goes. Uh, There was more I wanted to get to there. There's a moment there where uh, Lance has to basically bear the weight of what his lying has done to his kids and how his kids, um, you know, his kids thought he had not done any of that stuff. And then his kids are defending him at school, right? Like, oh, you're telling lies about my father. And then he had to go and tell them that it was all true. And it absolutely broke him. It's crazy to watch it. Part If you saw part one, it's good. Part one is good. Part two is sensational. Coming right back. Luke Thomas Show. WWE legend, The Undertaker. I have tried my hardest to protect kayfabe. Honestly, just within the last couple of years, I mean, I would cringe when I would hear people, you know, like we're doing now, like talking openly about behind the scenes stuff. It would just like, I, I'd grit my teeth and this, I think I was the real last holdout to, to kayfabe. Listen to Busted Open's interview with WWE legend, The Undertaker, on demand now via the SiriusXM app. Just search Busted Open Interviews now free for most subscribers. Let's get to this. So out of nowhere, uh, former UFC middleweight champion, all-time great, Anderson Silva comes out and says, you know what would be awesome? I think it was on Instagram. He's like, you know what would be awesome? It'd be awesome if I fought Conor McGregor, and here's the deal. I'll do it at 176.37 pounds. Now, how he came to 176 176- Point three seven. I don't know. I don't know what the genesis is behind that. Some other might. Some other you might know more than me. I don't. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. I don't. To me, it doesn't make much of a difference. Although it's just sort of highly unique in any event. So today, which is Thursday, May twenty eighth, I think. Connor took to Twitter and just said, uh, "I accept. I accept." I had a debate, so to speak. Uh, just you know, whatever. A friendly disagreement with a, my co-host, uh, Brian Campbell, on my other show, Morning Combat, he was, like, all in on this idea. Cobb, are you all in on the idea of Connor versus Silva at 176.37 pounds? All in? No. Slightly intrigued? Yes. Really? Jesus, I must be... I, okay, or you know what? I'm the only one who feels the way I feel. Fine. I am on the island. I'm on, I'm on Hater Island. I, I am apparently outvoted here. To what degree would you possibly have interest in this? Uh, again, I'm, I'm, let me say it one more time. You're the, I talked to Brian Campbell. He loves it. Talk to you. You at least have a slight degree of interest. I'm in the, the level where I have none. So clearly, I'm on the outside looking in on this one. Tell me why you have some. Like, Sell me on this. What is so intriguing about it? All right, so I don't know what Connor normally walks around at, but he made 170. If they did it like in that same little catch weight, be interesting to see Anderson Silva come down to that. And because Anderson's in that kind of twilight part of his career, I kind of wonder how much drop off there is in the skills. I think it's an interesting style matchup, to be perfectly honest. Like, just take the weight out of it. Just I think their styles are kind of interesting in a fight. Um, I, again, slightly intrigued. All in? No, uh, I'd be perfectly happy if they never made this fight. But I'm slightly intrigued. Yeah. Golly, man. I must be. I must be. I I am. I, you know, when (laughs) a lot of times I have a 
fairly decent read on what will get the fight fan excited. Not, not totally. You know, I, I'm certainly wrong time to time. I thought for sure there'd be groans for this one. Wow, I totally misread the room on this one. Here, here's why I don't like it. And again, I don't think they're actually going to make it because the problem with Connor is that you don't have know how many fights he's got. Le- Anderson is just in the part of his career where he can basically do whatever. He can fight a contender like Jared Cannonier. And some folks are like, why are you making that fight? You want to make a celebrity fight. So in that sense, the celebrity aspect of it, I sort of get. But Connor, you just don't know how many fights he has left. You want to make some kind of use of them in terms of you know, actual, valuable, meaningful fights for the sport, such as there can be, this would not be that. So I, I sort of get the Anderson angle a little bit. The counterpart, I don't. Moreover, here is how people are basically selling this fight. It's like, wow, uh, Silva is, is, is maybe the best fighter ever, right? You can make that claim. That's not a crazy claim at all. You might disagree, but he's in that conversation, okay? And for some, outright owns the title. This fight is only relevant, not merely because of a change in um, size, right? They, they, would, they would meet in the middle at 176.37, but they would be so radically different in uh, real frame, right? I mean, I've seen them both up, up close. Connor and Anderson are nowhere near the same size, right? Totally different frames. They can maybe meet, maybe meet at that weight, but um, it'd, be, it'd be crazy to see the size differential. That's not really the reason. The reason is both because of that, one, two, the the celebrity aspect of it, three, people are banking on Silva being so far past it at this point that it becomes competitive. Folks, I find that, frankly, a little bit alarming. Like, if you want to do super fights, it's not that you can't do a young contender versus someone a little bit aging, but Silva... I mean, I can't declare this with absolute certainty, but he appears at this point to not be anywhere even remotely close to his high level that he was once at, or even, frankly, top five of that division, maybe even top 10, to be perfectly honest with you. Who is in the top 10 at 185 pounds? So Whitaker, Costa, Cannoneer, Till, Romero. He's not in that space. Then you have Hermanson, Gastelum, Brunson, Shabazian, and Hall. I wouldn't favor... Silva to beat any of them, to be to be quite honest with you. I'm not saying he couldn't, but I wouldn't necessarily favor it. So the argument is predicated on this dude is basically so far past it, um, it'd be more competitive. And even then, you still might want to lean Silva because of the frame differential and because you have no idea how much Connor's power will carry up that high or not like I, I don't think you could really learn a whole lot from it which I don't think anyone really would say that's what the point of this fight is for it's not it's not really to you know how every fight does not need to be the greatest learning experience on earth okay I get it I totally understand sometimes it can just be fun but as I indicated Connor's got more important things to do while he's still around because lord knows how long that's going to last and two if you are banking on a fight it's not that you can't say you can't drain anybody because you can. It's not that you say you know someone could be a little bit older because you can. But what you're really kind of saying here, for mo- most people when I hear defend this fight, what I hear them saying is you've got someone who's basically in their absolute prime in Connor, who is much smaller against someone who is much bigger and, you know, should have retired long ago past it, like way past it in Silva. Dude, we really want to see that shit? Really? That's really the thing that gets us up in the morning. Again, if you're Cobb, you got a mild interest, whatever. I can't police it. I won't try. 
But for people who are like super all in on it, I mean, that's the exact opposite of what is happening with Jones versus Francis, right? You have a situation where both are in their at least relative peaks, if not absolute primes. And there's a question of what the size differential and skills differential and then, and then body type differential would be and, and, and what it might show. Not, hey, one guy is really small compared to another one, but he's young. The other one's washed or something. And I'm not calling him that, I'm, but that's the argument that people are making to make it competitive. F- what? <laughs> There's got to be a better use of our time. Give him another Silva, some other kind of, uh, you know, fight that's much more appropriate for him at this stage, not gerrymandered in the middle at 176 because you kind of take pity on him. And this will do him a solid because he'd be fighting a former featherweight. That seems like ghoulish and weird. And, you know, I'm not saying you couldn't pull it off. I'm not even saying people wouldn't watch. Although, you know, at first I thought they wouldn't, but I'm wrong. People would watch. Okay, I'll say it. People would watch. The celebrity would get them to watch. I was wrong about that. And uh, again, I can never even always guarantee it would be a bad fight. But I, I don't feel that way like I feel about Aldo versus Jan. Like Aldo showed a lot of promise against Marais. Again, I don't, he did not win, but you could certainly make the case that he uh, could have gotten his hand raised and at a bare minimum, let's just call it what it was, very competitive. Okay, all right. That's a thing you can understand with Jan and with Aldo. I, I can sort of, you know, grin and bear it a little bit there. I don't think he's meritocratically put himself in that position. And of course, that's not what Connor versus Silva would ever be about. But sometimes I just really don't understand at all what the value is of a fight when people get really behind it. It's like, what are you, even the Mike Tyson thing, I get a little bit more, right? Because what was Mike known for? Mike was like, you know, you're feeding the gazelle to the lion or something. You know, you just want to see a predator feast on the prey. So you, you, you basically arrange a similar circumstance for him to do that at age 53. I don't think that's a good idea, but I can understand the appeal in that case. This one, no. I don't get it at all. So you're not even like, okay, take away weight, take away age. You're not even remotely interested in, in the style matchup and how these two guys fight. Dude, the style that still, you can't take away the age and the weight, the, 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 the weight you could, right? Cause whatever he can diet down and, and, and they could make a, maybe they settle on 180 or something. Right. So fine. That part is less of an interest to me. And that would, that, that part actually makes it unique. The style that Silva is imploring, excuse me, the style that Silva is employing at this point is a function of his age and the damage and what's left. And it's not even close to what it once was. The fact that he doesn't get, you know, slaughtered fight over fight might be true, although he got badly injured against Cannoneer, which was terrible to see. No one's happy about that. But you talk about Silva like there's some kind of magic still there. When was the last time you saw Silva magic for three minutes against Israel Adesanya? That's it. That was a while ago too. Yeah. But also keep in mind too, you got Conor McGregor who tends to gas out if he goes past two rounds, which I think makes it a little bit more interesting. That style, who knows? It could, it, it could win Anderson the next three rounds. And then what dude, you know, it's Minowa man versus giant Silva at that point. Like who cares? What are you, what are you getting out of that? You're just, it's just, 
it's you know it's not reckless i don't think that's quite the right word for it it's absurdist for the point of being absurdist not absurdist to the point of being interesting and there's the fine line between them there are sometimes fights that they make and you're like that's a little bit of a weird one i have to i gotta noodle that for a second uh okay fine and then you sort of it comes to you over time this one is absurd for the sake of being absurd there's no there's no there's no there's no there there like what do you ultimately derive in the way in which they would compete what lesson would you learn there Right. You have you have so many variables at this point that are so far out of whack that virtually anything is possible. Number one. And then number two, what lesson is derived from any of it? And again, I know not everything has to be a teachable moment, per se. But I mean, like when the fight is over, you take a certain satisfaction. I don't think it'd be action packed. And, you know, I guess if Connor knocked him out like that would be good. Right. Or something. But I guess if Connor got knocked out. I, 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 I don't know. It was like Mayweather knocking out um, Nasakawa, which is very, very different. But it's like, after that was over, did you feel real good about it? <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, oh, that was, that was, this was a pointless money grab in the end. And again, that would have a different feel here, but that's the way I felt, Cobb. I, I do agree Connor has everything to gain. and now, uh, Very little to lose, I think, because he, he's the one taking all the risk in this, I feel like. So, yeah, yeah if you're yeah, in, right. you don't get much from it, but at least you take out, you know, the guy that everyone knows. I think he still gets some kind of shine. I think you could retire on that and be like, yeah, I'd be Conor McGregor. I'm done. Yeah, I guess. It's like you also, you know, you competed three weight classes up from where he uh, started his career, although I suppose one at the end. But Conor's not even a natural welterweight, you know. He's a modern welterweight, which is lightweight, who don't want to cut weight. You know, it's not it's not really what it is. Uh, I suspect that he's looking for that because look, dude, here's the thing. I don't think, here's what I think it really boils down to. He kind of looked at the situation and said, who is, uh, obviously Connor's a celebrity. Everyone wants to fight Connor, but I think he's at the point now where he's like, I don't want to be fed to the Jared Cannoneers anymore, which I understand. I completely get. I understand he is like, I'm a legend in this sport. I might be the greatest one to ever do it. I don't want to be fed to the Edmund Shabazians anymore. Dude, completely find that to be a rational take. So I think he's trying to find a way to navigate this part of his career where he doesn't want to quite hang it up just yet. But he, he probably maybe could be a top contender, but you know it's going to be very, very difficult. And you know there's not much upside for him at this point. And there's plenty of upside for the other guy. And I don't think he wants to be in that space anymore. And I think that's really what's driving it. It's a totally rational position for Silva to adopt. It just doesn't, it doesn't in any way interest me as a possibility, no, not even as a curious level of, in, uh, curious possible, you know, moment of intrigue either. Um, but all right, you guys uh, clearly disagree. So I am on the outside looking in. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.